Well, good morning. Good to see all of you today. Go ahead and take a seat. My name's Nathan. Welcome to Emmaus Church. This is a big weekend for our church community. Yesterday we gathered at the lake. We had like a promotion time for our kids um, who are moving into like the next level of grade school and middle school and high school. We baptized a young woman in the lake. Today more stuff is happening, more big sort of family stuff. We're going to spend some time this morning dedicating some kids um, and some families People, this is like a public time of prayer where we offer our children. We just publicly say, God, we're trusting our kids to you. Um, and we're going to do that. We're going to introduce some staff people. And we're going to do something else. Oh, we're going to celebrate high school graduates. So there's all kinds of stuff happening just in the life of our church community, of our family. And uh, one of the things, one of the natural ramifications of that is that it squeezes the sermon time down to about 12 minutes. So there's going to be a really short sermon. Um, so I want to jump right into it, but I want to invite you to raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. will be in Acts chapter 5. Uh, the key parts will be on the screen, but it's always helpful to have it um, before you. Acts chapter 5. Also, please raise your hand if you need a notes card, because that helps follow along. In addition to that, um, there is an address at the top of the notes card to tonight's big gathering, which is a big taco dinner and baptism at the Lester's home. We're baptizing 11 people tonight. It starts at 5.30. That's the baptism. And then for the next couple hours, we'll, we'll be um, sharing some Chondo's tacos together. So it's just a full weekend of a lot of things to celebrate. And so I'm going to offer a thought this morning that I hope will um, also be helpful with that. So grab a notes page, a Bible, and we will jump right into it. Welcome, if you're online with us today. So glad you joined us, and I hope you'll join us tonight. Open invitation to the Lester's home tonight in, in uh, Roseville at 530. Address is on the notes page. <clears throat> if you're online and you want to come and you don't have the address, reach out to one of us on staff. We'll help you out with that. All right. Uh, today we're continuing our Pentecost series. This is the season of Pentecost. The series is called Love and Power. We're asking, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? This is this phrase that we hear in the early church. We haven't heard it before. If you read from the beginning of the Bible just towards the end, uh, we haven't heard this phrase before. But now suddenly in Acts, the Christians are talking about being filled with the Holy Spirit. And so we're exploring what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we're considering two main themes which really kind of emerge. The two clear characteristics of the early Christian church that we read about in the book of Acts are these. When they are filled with the Holy Spirit, they are full of love and they're full of power. They're full of love, and they're full of power. So today we're going to consider a quick description of the kind of power that the apostles are experiencing in these early days of the church. Luke mentions some details in this passage that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 5, almost like they're no big deal, like they're kind of a casual, like of this happens almost all of the time kinds of things. But the details that he mentions completely challenge our typical experience of spirituality, at least mine. I think most of us are going to have our experience of Christianity challenged by the details that, that Luke, who is writing this story, uh, iterates here. They are remarkable. Luke's phrase that we're going to consider for uh, just a second, that he repeats seven times in Acts. Seven times he uses this phrase, and the phrase is, signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. 
Here's the first time it appears in Acts, chapter 5, verse 12. Luke writes, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. So when you read through Acts and you read this phrase over and over and over again, seven times, signs and wonders, it's clear that these signs and wonders that characterize the ministry of the early Christian church are really important. This is a big deal. But even more important than the signs and the wonders themselves, friends, are the results of these signs and wonders, are the, are the uh, ramifications of these signs and wonders. In other words, the ways they impact people. In other words, the results of the power is what we must recognize here. It's the impact of these demonstrations of power that I think we want to make sure we allow to take the front row seat. It's the effect that these supernatural signs and wonders have that we need to pay attention to because that's the bigger point. That's the more important point. There is no shortage of examples, especially in recent Christian history, probably since the beginning of time, but certainly in recent Christian history, there's, there's no shortage of examples of people who have majored on signs and wonders, on the dramatic, on the fantastic, on the exceptional, on the amazing. And sadly, when these demonstrations of power become the end goal, it leads to all kinds of really funky stuff. Things get a little bit out of whack. But that's not what happens in this story. Here, we're going to hear one of the more amazing examples of power recorded in the entire Bible. But what I hope that we'll focus on is not the specific example of power itself, but the results of that power. What that power does, the, the effects that that power has on the bigger community. Last week, I preached out of the beginning of Acts chapter 5. It's this really unique story about these, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira. The point is that they, they make a supposed gesture of devotion to God, but the gesture is really a deception. It looks like devotion, but it's actually deception, and it doesn't go well for them. Luke writes the story, at, it seems, as a warning to the church to fear God. Do not mess around. Don't take this lightly. This is not casual stuff. Um, there's a real power at work in the church. Don't think you could take advantage of that or manipulate that. God will not be lied to. The next story we'll read together. Acts 5, beginning in chapter, or beginning in verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. Luke, to me, just seems to be galloping through this portion of his story. I mean, th this is a short description of the apostles' impact on their culture. It feels more like a montage than a play-by-play -play to me. I wish he would have slowed down. 
I have so many more questions about the details of this account. There's so many more things I wish that he would have explained. But apparently what's important for us to know about this scene, even though we probably want to know more about this scene, is what is written. So let's consider three quick details about uh, that we are given. Three quick details that, that Luke does share with us. First, here's a powerful example of the clear distinction that is at work in the early Christian church. This concept or idea of distinction we reflected on several weeks ago as part of our freedom series based in the book of Exodus. There's something different about the people of God, and here it is again. Verse 12, all the people, all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. So the Christians are meeting in this famous, well-known, public-covered, paved porch within the walls of the temple complex, but outside of the temple itself. And this is important for two reasons. One, they are gathering for worship together. That's clear. All of the believers, one church at this time, literally, they all gather. It's important because they're worshiping together. Secondly, it's important because they're worshiping in public. They're not... This shows remarkable courage to me, and it shows remarkable commitment. They are not breaking from the Jewish faith. Do you see that? They're simply believing and proclaiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the Jewish Messiah, the one that they've been waiting for. And they're not doing this in secret. They're not hiding anything. You can see what they're doing. It's a colonnade. There's columns. There's not walls. There's columns. You can, you can see what they're doing. You can walk by and listen. You can hear their message. It's not in secret. What's interesting, however, is that no one joins the Christians. No one dared join them, is what Luke says. It's understood that these followers of Jesus are different, that they're distinct. But friends, it's not the kind of awkward weirdness that no one wants to associate with. It's, that's not what's making them distinct. They are highly regarded by the people. So maybe this is something kind of like when you're at a park and they've got a ton of basketball courts and there's all kinds of different basketball games going on, but there's those guys on that one court and they're just another level. They're just playing a game at a completely different level. So no one dares join them because they are at an elite level. Everyone's kind of playing their own game. They're kind of watching those guys, but they are highly re they're highly regarded by the people. But there's no one's going no to try to join them because they're like so good at what they're doing. I think it's sort of something like that. When the early Christians are filled with the Spirit, they're filled with power. And this power is being demonstrated in ways that, is, that are remarkable. So people know this. Others who don't are probably going, who are those people that are meeting over there in Solomon's Colonnade? And the answer is those are followers of Jesus of Nazareth. They're different. <laughs> okay? They're different. It's a respectful thing, but it's understood. So in this passage, Luke makes it really clear that the Christian church is characterized, one, by distinction. Secondly, somewhat surprisingly, Luke points out that there is also conversion happening here. He writes, verse 14, nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. Typically, when we think distinction, we think closed group. We think different, we think unwelcoming. But the Christian community here is open and welcoming without surrendering their distinction. Isn't that interesting? 
They're not watering things down in order to become more welcoming. They're basically saying, you're all welcome to just come in and witness wholehearted devotion to Jesus. We're not going to offer some toned down version of what we typically do. Come on in, watch us as we do the best we can to worship the Lord in the name of Jesus Christ. This is a powerful group. This is a devoted group. But this is not a closed group. Luke writes, no one even dared join them. But in the very next sentence... He says, more and more believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So reading between the, that's why I have so many more questions. But reading between the lines, I'm seeing basically that um, observers are becoming admirers. There's something legitimate about these people. And then admirers are becoming participants. People are converting. People are believing in Jesus. This movement is exploding in size and in influence. Once the followers of Jesus are filled with the Holy Spirit, their movement is characterized by distinction and by conversion. They are distinct, they are different, and yet it's still open. People are joining with them. They're they're converting to the faith. At this point in history, other Jews are believing that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that has come to redeem the world. And then finally, what is the result? Is is that it? Or is something else about to happen? Is the point of the, in other words, is the point of signs and wonders just to say, these people are different and you should join them? Is that as far as it goes? It's not. There's more to it than that. Ultimately, the result or the point is restoration. It's restoration. The result of the signs and wonders is more than just a continual stream of amazement and conversion. Though both of those things are great, ultimately the result of the signs and wonders is restoration. People's bodies get healed. Their minds become sound. Their lives get restored. Everything is made whole. Things that are broken are healed. Here's how Luke describes it. It's totally fascinating. This is Verse 15, as a result, pause here, as a result of what specifically? As a result of the distinction and the conversion. As a result of the understanding that these Jesus people are different, but they're also welcoming. As a result of the understanding that these Jesus people are powerful, but they're also loving, okay, This is what the people are are recognizing about the Christians. So as a result, verse 15, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least, can you, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. So here's the question that I'd like for us to consider quickly today. What are the results? Okay, this is the question. What are the results? What are the results? Communally and personally. Think about it like that. In other words, what are the results of this 
church called Emmaus that meets in an old movie theater in downtown Lincoln. What are the results? What are the results? Get, get more specific. What are the results of spending like 75 minutes together today? Why does this matter? Like what will come of this? Or, or make it real personal. And, and I'm in a position in my life because I'm in a big transition with my kids. So I, I'm like living here. What are the results of my life? What are the effects of my efforts? What has become of the way I've invested my time and my resources? What can I point to? What matters that has come from from my effort? Or the same question, and a little bit differently. What are the results of my faith? What results from my devotion to Jesus? What comes of this? What difference does my devotion to Jesus make on others? My children, my neighbors, my friends, you here, my community, people I coach baseball with, so on and so on. What are the results of my devotion to Jesus? That's the question. What are the results? Friends, what's easy or at least what's typical for people to get out of a passage like the one we just read that is so fascinating and so bizarre, frankly, is to focus on the methods. Most of what you'll read about this passage in commentary for the last 2,000 years focuses on what, you think? The whole shadow bit, right? (laughs) Because that's crazy. So, so that's what, and, and then what people do, especially modern people, because we love formulas, they try to generate some sort of repeated, some sort of replicable um, strategy based on this. And so it goes something like this. If Christians really are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we should engage in like demonstrative worship in places that are public, like the stairs in front of the Capitol building, or we should Gather around flagpoles. If we're really filled with the Holy Spirit, we go big, we go public, we go right in Solomon's colonnade. Clearly they did it in Acts chapter 5. It's a biblical method, right? Or we say, if Christians really are empowered by the Holy Spirit, we should be able to heal people and free people from demonic oppression simply by walking by them. Clearly, it happened in Acts chapter 5. It is a biblical method of healing. And maybe there is a time and a place for that. I am not doubting that it happened even a little bit. I don't have a problem with that. I don't doubt it could happen today. I frankly don't have a problem with that either. But I would encourage us, friends not to focus so much on the specific methods of the earliest Christians that we miss the bigger picture, which I think is the broader effects of the the, the greater results of these methods or of the experience, which I would characterize as the devotion that the early church had to God. Here's, Here's the sermon in a sentence. I think what's important for us to see here 
is that the early Christians' reverence for God resulted in others recognizing their own need for Jesus and then going to him and his power for healing. I'll say it again. The early, I think the point is this. The early Christians' reverence for God resulted in other people recognizing their own need for God and their own need for the power of God in their lives to heal and to restore. Some of the things about our culture, in other words, our time, our place in history, they're different than the culture and the time in history of the early Christian church. So some of the methods might be different. In other words, some of the things that worked in first century Palestine or some of the things that worked in 15th century Germany or some of the things that worked in 20th century middle America may not work so well in northern California, 21st century. Because methods change. Methods change. God rarely does the same thing the same way. But some things don't change. The truth doesn't change. Okay, the truth doesn't change. The Holy Spirit still fills people with love and power. He still does. That doesn't change. Followers of Jesus are still called to live different from the crowd. Okay, that doesn't change. The church is still called to keep the doors open and to be welcoming to those who are in need. That has not changed in 2,000 years. Okay. And the end game is still the restoration of all things. We're still called to join with Jesus in the great mission of God, which is putting all things back to their intended purpose. It's the restoration of all things. Luke writes this, as a result, that's what we should focus on. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets. And then he has this amazing phrase, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. And I don't know, friends, that anyone will ever have reason to write down anything about my shadow. I just don't think it's that remarkable. I'm, I just, it's just not. But I do pray, I do pray that my presence, okay, my listening, my work, my words, that God's love for me and in me God's power for me and through me will somehow make a difference in the world. I pray that. And I pray that each of us will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that wherever we go, we will be a healing presence to those we interact with. The people who don't yet recognize God will sense the healing presence and power of God through us. And that restoration will be the result. And that our lives will be a powerful and loving shadow of God wherever we go. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this community, for the blessing of being in this journey together. Give us grace, courage, insight, wisdom, love, power. So that those who recognize their need will be bring the sick into the streets and that we will be there too and that we can address the needs with your power, with your love, for your glory. Amen. Amen. Two families to come forward today who um, have asked us to pray for their kids. This is um, a tradition that goes back to the beginning, to like the Gospels. We see Jesus' parents dedicate him Essentially, this is just something that probably most parents who have any kind of concept of God 
do in their hearts. They say, God, please help me raise my kid. And, and what we're trying to do is say that by making this intentional and public, by, by saying, essentially by praying, God, we're dedicating our kids to you um, in the, in, within the context of our community. We're, we're hoping that this just becomes increasingly a meaningful thing. I can tell you that at this stage in my life, with a 20-year-old and an 18-year-old, um, I am, I'm grateful we dedicated these kids to God a long time ago. Like, this is something that we did, and it, it matters to that in, in that regard as well as others. So I want to invite families to come up. We have three families that we're going to um, pray. We're going to pray for their kids. Leah's going to stay up here with me. She's going to pray for the parents. As they're coming up, uh, let me just... Let me share something that I recently discovered that is so fascinating to me. One of Jesus' disciples is named John. He's the only one that isn't killed, so he lives a long time. And he writes these short little letters to the church. One of them is called 2 John or 2 John. There's only 13 verses in this whole letter. Come on up here, guys. And what, what John says at one point in this letter is that it gives me great joy to see some of your children continuing in the faith as the Lord um, committed to us, as the Father commanded us. In other words, so much of what we read in the Bible is directed to the first generation of Christ followers, right? It's telling essentially those who can hear and read, or not read at that point, but those who can hear and understand, it's telling us how to live as followers of Christ, but here's what John begins to see, and I think, because he says it's given me great joy, I think this begins to motivate John late in his life when he's like, all my brothers are gone. Has this made any difference? And he says, yes, because some of your children are following Jesus like the Lord commanded us to follow Jesus. And, and so... I, um, I'm so grateful that you, th you three families um, are following Jesus and that you want to raise your kids as well. I'm going to ask you two questions. I'm going to ask a question to the church. By dedicating your children today to God, you are declaring that you're Christian. You're declaring that you will model the faith. You're going to show your kids how to live for Jesus in, in its simplest form. You're going to show them. Not just tell them, but show them. You're going to raise them in the church, the community of Jesus. With the help of God, will you promise to do that? If so, say, we will. Secondly, you're acknowledging that your children are a gift from God, and they're entrusted to you for a little while. And your job is to help them discover God's purpose for their life, and then to cheer them on as they step into that next chapter of life someday down the road, and to be an encouragement to them as they follow God. With the help of God, will you promise to do that? If so, say we will. Friends, we get the blessing of being the church community around these little kids. We are the ones who get to give them the impression of the church as a healthy, loving, accepting, involved kind of community or something not so positive. So I want to ask you as the church, will you do all in your power to encourage these little ones as they learn about Jesus and learn to know Jesus and begin to follow Jesus? If so, say, we will. Amen. Amen.
All right. Let's start with uh, Rebecca Cody. Okay, if you guys could, yeah, just step up here, and um, you can hold her. Yeah. This is the Cody family. This is their youngest, Rebecca K. Cody. Read this for you. These are the words of Peter. You were chosen by God the Father long ago. He knew you, you were to become his children. You were set apart for holy living by the Holy Spirit. May you obey Jesus Christ and be made clean by his blood. May you be full of his loving favor and peace. Amen. Amen. Rebecca K. Cody, we dedicate you to God in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. God bless you guys. This is the Burns family, Brandon and Melody. This is their second son, Tio Maximilian. The Burns have chosen Psalm 127, verse 3, which says, Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. God, I pray for Melody and Brandon as they raise this young family Give them great grace, great strength, great consistency, the ability to forgive and to keep going, to lead with strength. And together, Lord, we dedicate Tio Maximilian Burns to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. This is Jake and Crystal Jensen, and we're dedicating both of their children today. Harper Ray Lorraine Jensen and Luke Kevin Jensen. This is a passage from, from Paul that they've chosen. So then just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. Amen. Let's pray together. God, thank you for Crystal and Jake. Please give them great grace, courage, the ability to be in the moment and to trust your presence here. I pray for wisdom as they lead and as they face challenges. And I pray for joy for them in their parenting. And together, Lord, we dedicate Harper Ray Lorraine to you, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And together, Lord, we dedicate Luke, Kevin, Jensen to you, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, buddy. Amen. Thank you, guys. God bless you. Good. I want to invite you to sing this song with Melissa and others. This is a song we are going to sing as a blessing over these families Let's pray and sing this together.